each year around the time of the Academy Awards, we do a series that we call City Church at the Movies. We analyze a few of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture. Last week, we looked at what I think is a terrific movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This week, I'm going to be talking about the movie Lady Bird. How many of you have seen this movie? Raise your hands if you've seen Lady Bird. Okay, good. I wonder if I were to ask for a show of hands regarding who liked this movie and who didn't, I wonder if it would be divided down gender lines. In other words, was it easier for women to connect with this movie than men, at least on the surface? The interesting thing is that whatever you might have thought about this movie, I just want you to listen to this, Lady Bird broke the all-time record for consecutive positive reviews on the very well-known film review website, Rotten Tomatoes. It had a 100% what they call fresh score, and it had zero negative reviews. That has never happened before. Now think about that. No negative reviews. Is that even possible in our culture? Lady Bird was written and directed by a woman by the name of Greta Gerwig, and the movie is set in her hometown of Sacramento, California. The year is 2002. Lady Bird is a 17-year-old girl played by the terrific young actress Cersei Ronan. And what we find early in the movie is that actually Lady Bird's real name is Christine. She actually gave herself the name Lady Bird. Lady Bird is in her senior year of high school and will soon be going off to college. She can't wait to leave Sacramento, which she refers to as the Midwest of California. And she longs, that was was funny, okay, and longs to go to a prestigious East Coast college. Lady Bird and her mother, Marion, played by Lori Metcalf, have a characteristically complicated relationship for a mother and a teenage daughter. And as the movie wears on, their dynamic crystallizes into a passive, aggressive centerpiece that is the center of the movie. It's ultimately a showdown between two women who both think they know what's best for Lady Bird's future and how far each of them are willing to go to make their point. As many 17-year-olds are, Lady Bird is restless, impulsive, sarcastic, and moody. She wants to experience life. There is this scene in which Lady Bird says to her mother, I wish I could live through something. And just to be honest with you, the cynical part of me couldn't help but think that given the movie was set in 2002, Lady Bird would likely be finishing college sometime around 2008, laden with thousands and thousands of dollars in student loans, just as the Great Recession descends on the country. And I thought, oh, you're going to live through something, girl. Yes, you are. may not be what you want to live through, but you're going to live through it. It seems at times that everyone around Lady Bird is trying to dash her dreams, and yet she has this inner strength of persistent hopefulness that refuses to be discouraged. I wouldn't blame you. If you haven't seen this movie, I wouldn't blame you if you're thinking that this movie has been done so many times that it sounds cliche, you know, a coming-of-age kind of movie. 
But I think it's a tribute to the great writing behind this movie that nothing about this movie is cliche. I think it surprises you at almost every turn. And I think that there are some things about this movie that aren't evident on the surface that make it really a very powerful movie. It opens with Lady Bird and her mother traveling back home after a visit to a prospective college that she might attend. You saw that in the trailer. But what you didn't see is that the scene began with both of them listening to the end of John Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath. They were listening to it on audio cassette, and they were crying, and they were laughing together at the end. It's significant that they were listening to The Grapes of Wrath because it sets up the paradox that is at the heart of the movie, the divergent attitudes that mom and daughter have. In Steinbeck's novel, California holds the promise of a brighter future. But in this movie, California is the nest that Lady Bird seeks to fly away from. She desperately wants to leave home. She wants to seek out more. And yet she's entirely closed off to the very opportunities and experiences that surround her in Sacramento. Greta Gerwig brilliantly I think, highlights the trouble that their divergent attitudes cause in this first scene of the movie, in the car. And it's in a way that many parents, I think, can identify with. They've just had this emotional moment together, listening to the end of Steinbeck's novel. Mom wants them to sit and to let this moment soak in. But Lady Bird is ready to listen to music, and so she reaches to turn on some music. Mom reaches out to stop her, which is what starts the fight you saw in the trailer and which causes Lady Bird to be so frustrated that she jumps out of the car. Now, I want to tell you something, just the tiniest digression here. I want to tell you that I was not always on mom's side. By the way, I'm just, because I think you need it, I'm giving you a warning. There's something funny coming. So prepare to laugh with gusto. I wasn't always on mom's side, but I do have to say that on, in that moment, I was on mom's side. Because here's the thing. Being trapped in a car, listening to your kid's music is painful. I like to listen to music in the car sometimes when I'm driving. But I like to listen to my music, not my kid's music. Why? Well, it's simple. My music is good and theirs isn't. Also because I own the car. But that's not all. When they turn their music on, there's no more talking with anyone in the car. You can't hear anything else, not even my wife who's sitting next to me in the front seat. We pull up to a stoplight, and our car is the one that is thumping so loud everyone else can hear it. Now, what I'm about to tell you doesn't have anything to do with the movie. But for those of you with, say, junior high or high school kids, and you don't want to listen to their music while you're in the car, I'm about to change your life right now. I found a genius way to prevent having to listen to their music in the car. And it works so well, my kids don't even try anymore. And here's what I would do. When they would plug their iPhones in and start to listen to music, I would act like I loved it so much that I'd start to dance while I was driving. And I'd do it big, man. And they were mortified. 
I'd do it when I was dropping him off at school in the morning, and when I picked him up in the afternoon, I was dancing. And it works like a charm once I even got out of the car at a stoplight and danced. They never turn on music when I'm in the car with them. I don't even have to say anything anymore. That's going to change your life. Would you agree? (laughs) Okay, end of digression. And let's go back to the movie. There's so much that was good in this movie, more than I have time to cram into a few minutes this Sunday. So I'm just going to focus on two of the primary themes that run through this movie. And here's the first one. It has to do with the complicated relationship between the mother and the daughter. The complicated relationship between the mother and the daughter. As I was preparing for this sermon, I read an interview with uh, the writer and the director of Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, whose name I mentioned a a few moments ago. And she described the movie as, she said that it's it's largely an homage to the complexities of the mother-daughter bond. She said this, and I'll put it up on the screen so you can read it too. The mother-daughter relationship is the love story of the film. It's the central theme of the movie. Most women I know had infinitely beautiful, incredibly complicated relationships with their mothers in their teenage years. I wanted to make a film where the audiences feel that neither of the characters is a monster nor an angel, and neither one is right or wrong. I have to tell you, I appreciate what Gerwig is saying, but I think that I would modify that last phrase. I think it's true that neither the mother or the daughter is a monster or an angel, but I would argue that each of them were right at times and each of them were wrong at times, which is actually, I think, one of the major strengths of this movie. It it presents mother-daughter relationship in a very realistic way. Most movies, most coming-of-age movies, portray the the kid, everything right. They're smart. They know what they're doing. They're wiser than their parents. Their parents are stupid. Their parents are foolish. Not this movie. It doesn't do it that way. It presents life, again, very realistically. For instance, let's start with mom. Mom is hovering. Mom is overprotective. Mom is hyper-demanding. Mom is critical. Mom is guilt-inducing. And sometimes mom is just plain cruel in the things that she says to her daughter. I don't know about you, but I cringed at some of the things that she said to Lady Bird, how how hurtful they were. Did you feel that way? There's this one scene in which Lady Bird asks her mom if she likes her. You saw some of this on the trailer just a little while ago. Lady Bird is trying on clothes, and she asks her mom, she says, do you like me? To which her, her mom responds, Of course I love you. But Lady Bird replies, that's not what I asked you. I asked you if you like me. To which her mom only responds, I just want you to be the best version of you. There's this powerful verse that's found in the book of Proverbs that those of us who are parents I think would be very wise to memorize. Whether your kids are young and at home or whether they're adults that are out on their own now. And the verse goes like this. 
Proverbs 15. It says, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Now, when you read that word perverse, don't think sexually perverse. The Hebrew word comes from a root that means to twist or to distort. And in the context of parenting, this is a parent who uses, who says things that actually twist or distort the child's perspective of himself or herself in a way that ultimately crushes their spirit. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of those kinds of negative words, if you've been on the receiving end of a lifetime of those negative words, you know just how crippling that is. And you know how much those words shape your perspective of yourself for the rest of your life. I found myself worrying about the impact of her mother's words on Ladybird's future. I wanted her mom to speak soothing words to her daughter, the kind of words that Proverbs 15 says are a tree of life, words like this that some of you may never have heard, like this, I'm so proud of you. I like you. In some cases, I love you, although she says it in this movie. Some of you have never heard those words from a parent. Or here's one, even this, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Because here's the thing, we aren't perfect parents, any of us. Most of us want to be good parents, but the reality is that we aren't always good parents. And sometimes in the stress and the fatigue of life, we say and we do things that are terribly hurtful. And sometimes the most powerful thing that we can say to our kids is just, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Have you ever said that to your kid? Have they ever heard you acknowledge you're wrong? It's a powerful thing. And listen to me, it's never too late to do it. Your kids might be out of the home on their own, grown adults. But if there are things that you did or said that you regret, go now, today, and tell them you're sorry and that you were wrong, and you have no idea how powerful that could be and how much healing that could bring into your son or your daughter's life. It's powerful. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Now, look, some of you with young children, like you, or maybe you don't have children, but you're thinking about the day that you're going to be a parent, and you hear all of this, and you're sitting there right now, all judgy, thinking, I'll never say harsh, cruel things to my child. Well, listen to me. I have two words for you. Ha, ha. (laughs) You will say things that you can't believe came out of your mouth. It's hard for you to believe, those of you who have young children, that the little bundle of joy that you hold in your arms or the precious toddler who comes to greet you at the door like you're a rock star when you come in from a long, hard day, It's hard for you to believe that that child will one day become a moody, sullen, know-it-all who knows every single one of your buttons and will intentionally push them with glee. And while you will always love them, 
You won't always like them. Someone once said that grandchildren are rewards given to parents for not murdering their children when they were teenagers. I was so glad when Amy and I had sons. I was like, great, man. There's sons to carry on the family name. But I confess to you that there were times when I told my sons not to reveal who they were. You make up a name. Just don't tell anybody who you are. And it happens. So don't sit there being all judgy of the rest of us. Yes. Lady Bird's mom is wrong sometimes in this movie. I don't want to let her off the hook. She never says to her daughter, she never says, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But I also think the movie wants us to see that there's a lot that was right about this mother too. This is a woman who works double shifts to keep the family financially afloat because her husband has lost his job. She's tired and she's stressed that there's still not going to be enough money to keep them going. But in spite of her fatigue, In spite of her stress, she shuttles Lady Bird back and forth to places. She shops for a prom dress with her. She tailors the dress herself to make it fit Lady Bird just right. Though she's not always a good mom, she is clearly a good woman who sincerely loves her daughter. And that counts for something. At the same time, she also feels... And I think the movie wants us to see this, that Lady Bird doesn't see and appreciate the sacrifices and the work that it takes to provide her the life that she does have. And so here again, the movie lets us see a very realistic version of a teenage girl wrestling with her identity and trying to individuate, if you will, from her mother. It's a good and noble struggle, but Lady Bird isn't perfect either. There's this scene near the end of the movie. Lady Bird has graduated from high school and she's in college, presumably in New York City where she always wanted to be. And she's in a hospital emergency room. She'd been at a party where she had uh, drank too much and she actually threw up on a boy. I guess the boy had called 911 and... An ambulance had taken her to the hospital, and she's all alone. This is what she had wanted, to be away, away from her home, away from her family, away from Sacramento. She wanted to be an adult. She gets up from her bed, and she looks over. Some of you remember this scene? She looks over at a little boy and his mother who are in the same room. The boy, I don't know how old he was. I was trying to guess, maybe seven or eight years old. His left eye is heavily bandaged. His mother sits there by his side comforting him. Immediately, Lady Bird leaves the hospital. And she makes an emotional phone call to her mother. She gets the answering machine. And she begins to tell her mom in her own way how much she appreciates her for all that she had done for her. And it's almost as if when she saw that little boy and his mother, that she realized that she'd only been seeing the world with one eye, through the eye of a teenage girl. Others around her could see things in her mom that she hadn't seen, that her mom had a big heart, 
And that while she could be scary, she could also be warm. But Lady Bird was too myopic to see all of that. And now in a lonely hospital room across the country from her mother, oh, what she would give to have her there with her, comforting her. This movie feels to me like an apology of sorts. An apology from a now adult woman to a mother who was far from perfect, but who nonetheless loved her daughter. It's difficult being a teenager. And it's difficult being the mother of a teenager. But that final scene where she's making that phone call to her mom offers hope that with time and with perspective, the frayed edges of a mother-daughter relationship can be repaired and ultimately become the very thing that binds them together in the end. It doesn't always happen that way, but there's hope that it can. It's a complicated relationship of a mother and a daughter. Well, that's where the movie spends most of its time. But there is something else that I want to comment on as as I close. It's another theme that I think was very prevalent in this movie. And it has to do with how to discover your identity. How to discover who you are. Uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but this movie is bracketed by Lady Bird's name. In the beginning of the movie, we learn that her real name, as I mentioned earlier, is Christine. And then all through the movie, she calls herself Lady Bird. But at the end of the movie, she no longer refers to herself as Lady Bird, but by the name her parents had given her, Christine. The first time she refers to herself as Christine was at the party that I mentioned that she got so drunk at. She introduces herself to another student, a guy, and out of the blue, she asks him, do you believe in God? And he responds with a sarcastic laugh, and he says that, Belief in God is ridiculous. But Christine scolds him for his shallow thinking, and she wonders out loud. She says this, People go by the names their parents give them, but they don't believe in God. People go by the names their parents give them, but they don't believe in God. Did you wonder what that meant? You see, up until this point in her life, Christine had fought the imprint of her parents' image on her. She wanted to be independent of them, so she changed her name. She challenged all the tenets of the faith that her parents had raised her in. She wanted to be across the country from them in the place that they raised her in. She wanted to be her own person because that's the American way, right? Rugged individualism. I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul, says the poet William Ernest Hensley in his well-known poem, Invictive. But in the end, Christine realizes that no matter how hard you try, you can't change what is true just because you don't want it to be true. Without her parents, she didn't exist. And her name represented that. A name is something that's given to you. You don't, you don't name yourself. 
And so not only did she owe her very existence to her parents, but her identity was inseparable from her relationship with them. For so long, she'd been closed off to the idea that anything good could come from her family, her upbringing. But now that her eyes have been opened, now that she's really seeing, she can see her mom's imprint on her soul. She can see her mom's compassion and empathy in her own soul. And she recognizes that this was a kind of grace that she had been given that she had never seen before. And so when she says that people go by the names their parents give them, but they don't believe in God, she's saying, in essence, that identity is discovered. It isn't manufactured. It's discovered. It's not manufactured. Who you are is inseparable from your parents. And if you accept the image that has been stamped on you by very imperfect parents, why are you so closed off? This is what she's asking. This is what she's saying to the guy. Why are you so closed off to the idea that the image of a perfect, loving, gracious God has been imprinted upon your heart too? And then in the final scene of the movie, Christine stands in a church before a choir, and you see the solitary tear of joy just falling down her cheek. She goes outside, and as I told you a little while ago, she calls and she leaves her this very sweet message. And when she signs her message, the very end, she does so not with the elusive nickname that she bestowed upon herself, but with the particular Christian name given to her by her mother, Christina. She realizes that her mother's image is indelibly printed on her and that she could never discover her own identity without first acknowledging that reality. And it's this part of the movie that is... What prompted one reviewer to declare, listen to this, that Lady Bird is a brutally honest Christian masterpiece. Does that surprise you? The reviewer saw in Lady Bird's journey the story of a girl who was lost, who was trying to manufacture an identity for herself, only to realize that one's identity can't be manufactured. Ultimately, it has to be discovered through relationship with your creator. What the movie didn't say is that while it is true the image of God is printed on every single person who lives on this planet, the Bible says that our sin, our rebellion, our attempt to find an identity and a life apart from God has separated us from him. And so God, in his great mercy and grace, sent his son to die on a cross so that the separation that that sin has caused between you and God could be bridged. And there at the cross, all of the questions about your identity are answered. The apostle Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You've been given For those of you who believe in Christ, you've been given a new identity. And so the way to discover identity is always to look at the cross 
where your worth was forever declared, where forgiveness has washed away your sins, and where you have been marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit that says you belong to God. And the Bible says that at the end of time, God will give you a new name to consummate this new identity that you've been given. And it will be a name that comes through your relationship with Christ. The one at whose name all heaven and earth will one day bow. And that new name will be a good name. One that you will forever give thanks for. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord, I pray for relationships between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons in this room, that there might be healing that comes through those relationships because you care about relationships. Perhaps there would be a mother that would say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Perhaps there would be a a daughter that would be able to see her mother from a new perspective. And she would tell her how much she she appreciated that part of her. Maybe there would be a father who would say, I love you to a son who's never heard those words. I pray for healing. Lord, I also pray for those who are looking for identity in places that they can never find it. They're trying to manufacture an identity. They're trying to see themselves as a career. They're trying to see themselves vicariously through the lives of their children what their children have achieved. They try to see themselves through the lives of their kids and how good they are. Lord, I pray that you would cause all of us in this room today to recognize that identity can only be solved and declared at the cross. It can only be discovered. It can't be manufactured. I pray that there would be people in this room today who would believe on Christ. That they would believe on him as their savior, as their Lord. And they would begin to look to the cross for their identity. And for those who already know Christ, that they would be reminded that it is only at the cross every single day of their lives that their identity can be discovered. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.